The Bookfinger podcast is a lively discussion about romance books, culture, and bachelors. Dr. Jodie McAllister joins us for episode 51, recorded in Sydney. Bookfinger would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this episode was recorded, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We also acknowledge the contributions of Australia's Indigenous people to our shared literary heritage. Welcome to the Book Thinker Podcast, talking about books we love, especially romance. Kill a fairy fast on the Book Thinker Podcast. Welcome back to the Book Thinker Podcast. I'm Kat Mayo from bookthingo.com.au, an Aussie blog for romance readers. Today's guest is Dr. Jodie McAllister, a romance academic, pop culture enthusiast, theatre aficionado and author of young adult fiction. You might remember her from episodes four and five when she introduced us to the idea that love is a sexually transmitted disease. Today she's back to talk royalty and reality TV and give us an update on the world of romance academia. You can find information on the titles and authors we talk about in this episode by going to bookthingo.com.au slash podcast and clicking on episode number 51. Jodie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. We actually had you on the show a couple of years ago. Yeah. And the recording for that was at even older yeah, than I a couple we, of years ago. We did it in at RWA in Fremantle in twenty thirteen. Yes. And at the time you were still just writing your PhD. Yeah, I was ooh, yeah, about halfway through at that point. And now you are a PhD graduate. Yes. Yay. And as of February I will be a full time tenure track lecturer at Deakin University. That's amazing. Which will be cool, teaching writing as well as literary studies. So you've also been involved in the Genre Worlds project, haven't yes, you? Yes, very much. Um, so maybe you can tell us a bit about where the academic study of romance is at the moment because there's been a lot of work going on yeah. um, in the field. Absolutely. So I'll start by talking about the Genre Worlds project. I'm currently, well, I'm just finishing up as a research assistant to Dr. Lisa Fletcher. Someone else will take over for me when I... Uh, I leave for Deakin University. So Genre Worlds is a major Australian Research Council discovery grant across multiple universities. And the chief investigators are Dr. Beth Driscoll at the University of Melbourne, Dr. Kim Wilkins and Dr. David Carter at the University of Queensland, and Dr. Lisa Fletcher at the University of Tasmania, who I work for. And this is an investigation into Australian popular fiction in the 21st century and what it looks like and where it's going, where it's been, that kind of thing. And instead of taking individual texts and doing close reading like we might traditionally do in literary studies, this project is using a much broader, much more mixed methodology approach where uh, the people involved are looking at the data, they're reading the texts and they're talking to the people involved. So there are three different genres that this project covers. There's fantasy, crime and romance, and I've been working with Lisa in the romance arm. So uh, Lisa's identified 10 different authors for case studies and then different texts from each of those authors for case studies, and then investigating not just those texts but also the people around them. How did those texts get produced? And we've been looking at some larger data that we've got from places like Auslit, to see what kind of trends we can find. And so the Genre Worlds Project understands genre not just as a type of book, but as a body of texts, a sector of the industry, 
and as a social formation. So thinking about the communities around genre. So reading communities, writing communities, review communities, there's all different kinds of communities. And it's a really innovative way of understanding genre. It's much more interconnected and thinks a lot more about the relationships than other methodologies have been. A lot of romance scholarship in the past has focused just on close reading. And this is something which which is meritorious in its own way. But when you're studying a genre that's as big as romance, it's got its problems. So, for example, there was some much, much now derided scholarship from the 80s, which would make big claims about all of Harlequin by reading just five books. And when you consider the amount that Harlequin puts out just in one month, then drawing big conclusions based on that small number is problematic. So are there any preliminary findings or interesting observations that you can share with us? Oh, I wish I had all the the cool graphs and tables (laughs) in front of me. One of the good things about this kind of research is that you can produce graphs. And and there's a lot of data. It's a data-rich methodology. So it's not data only. I mean, there's still a lot of reading involved. It's got quantitative and qualitative arms. But there are, like... There are graphs and things. The biggest findings, I think, is just how influential Harlequin is in the Australian book market. I think we would understand that they they dominate in terms of romance, but because their output is so large, that that is large across all the spectrums if we look at Australian publishing as a whole. Because in Australia, they don't just publish romance, they publish general fiction and they even publish uh, non-fiction as well, don't they? Yeah, they do a lot of things. But even if even if we were just talking about the romance arm, the sheer amount that they're putting out means that they are a really big force in Australian publishing, full stop. Does the research catch the reading behaviour from people who buy non-Australian books, non-Australian published books, or is it focused on Australian publishing? It's focused on Australian publishing more so at the moment. So it's about Australian... The industry? Yeah. So it's about Australian popular fiction in the 21st century. And when you think about what Australian means, uh, it usually means either published in Australia or by an Australian author. What about independent and self-published Australian books. Absolutely, definitely looking at those. So how do you find the data for that? Uh, So a lot of what we did came from Auslit. So I say we, I'm just a lowly research assistant. So you should uh, should listen to the previous podcast episode with Lisa Fletcher if you want to get the really authoritative version of this. I'm like the unauthorized biography. (laughs) But when we were looking at uh, the data from Auslit, who the Genre Awards Project worked with to make sure we had really good data samples for a few little two-year spans, so 2000, 2001, 2010, 2011, and what was it, 2015, 2016. We divided the the kinds of publishers into the major publishers, so talking about the the big six or the big five, depending on... Who owns, Who's merged when? <laughs> yeah, who, who owns Harlequin at the present time, whether Penguin and Random are separate or together, you know. Then you've got established independents. So people like Alan and Unwin are counted in this, but also quite small boutique presses can be captured by this. So I'm, I think the metric we use that to be an established independent press, you had to have, I can't remember if it was, yeah, it must have been 10 titles and at least three distinct authors. Don't quote me on that, but it was it was something like that. It was so there was some sort of parameters around yeah. defining it. Yeah, yeah, I think that was it. I did, we did this work about nine months ago. So. Check the show notes, guys, if yeah. there's any corrections. <laughs> but it means it could encompass quite large publishers like Allen and Unwin, but also really quite small boutique presses and a lot of our digi only presses. And there are, in, what are the there. small boutique presses that service genre in Australia? 
Oof. Oh, well, there are quite a lot of them. A lot of them are overseas presses. They're not right. necessarily Australian presses. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then also the, the third kind of arm we looked at was self-publishing and some authors will kind of incorporate as a company. So that's why we needed that distinction between an established independent and self-publishing or a very, very, very like a micro press. And do you look at author and reader communities as well? Yeah. So we haven't, well, I personally haven't been involved in too much work on reader communities, but a big part of the Genre Worlds project is understanding the genre as a social formation. So thinking about writing communities, reading communities, all different kinds of communities. So when does this research get published? Uh, so the chief investigators are working on their book proposal right now, but uh, there will also be publications in other places that will come out. And will the there be papers presented at IASPA in Sydney in June? Absolutely. So the Genre Worlds team are the keynote at IASPA. So you will hear a whole lot from all the members of the team there, which will be excellent. Fantastic. So then moving on, um, you have also published a book since we last talked to you. I have, yes. And one due out in February. Yeah, so January 29 for, you know, that's a February release. Technically January. Technically January. I always find that a bit weird that books come out at the end of the month, but officially they are listed as the month after. Yeah. It's one of those one of those little things about publishing that I don't understand. Nor do I. And I just let people that do understand it tell me what to do. Okay, so tell us a little bit about what it's like to be on the other side of book production, as it were. Oh, it's a trip, honestly. It's, it's really strange because in my academic career I met a lot of the people that I now work with and my role has shifted. It's really strange trying to straddle that ground between academia and author because when people do occupy that ground normally they go the other way they start as an author and they go hey I'm gonna do a PhD so it's uh and often a creative artifact PhD whereas I have a fully exegetical PhD and then I made the step into authorlandia and how are you enjoying well. that so far because I've seen that you've been attending conferences and because your book is so your first book is called valentine yes and it's paranormal young adult fiction mm -hmm. so you've also been going to sort of science fiction fantasy conventions as yeah. well as young adult events which in australia ya events are huge yeah so i haven't done a whole i've done a few ya events so i'm going to do the somerset writers festival which is going to be which is a big ya festival but I did some good YA events in 2017 and doing the sci-fi fantasy ones was probably where I felt most out of my depth because people would put me on panels about sci-fi and fantasy and then I had to go and do all this research so I sounded like I knew what I was talking about. You just have to segue to, and then when they kiss. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yeah, let, just let me talk about the kissing bits. Like I did a continuum in Melbourne in June and they invited me to be on a panel about Jane Austen. And I was like, yes, great. I can talk about Jane Austen all day. And then they put me on another panel called Forgotten Mothers of Fantasy. And I was like, <laughs> oh, oh, dear. Oh, no. So I had to go and read all this, like, old school sci-fi fantasy, which was really cool. Uh, like, I found some some fascinating sort of prototexts in the, even as early as the 16th century, which was great. I figured that could be my niche. I could go way far back. because No way. <laughs> no one can contest you. <laughs> well, no I, there's no way in the space of a few weeks I could come up to the required amount of literacy. It's like, I mean, if someone tried to do the same for romance, like if someone got stuck on a romance panel when they were coming from sci-fi and they tried to speak authoritatively about the modern romance genre, 
I mean, they would find it hard because it's huge. And, you know, genre readers are very passionate about their worlds and their community so yeah they can tell straight away if you're making it up yeah well I figured I'm a I'm a literary historian I better lean into, lean into my academic background and just go way far back one of your other um pastimes I guess or areas of interest mm -hmm. is reality tv and yes. you actually be doing recaps for the book thing over blog yep. for The Bachelor and The Bachelorette Australia. Yes. So tell us in 2018 what you're looking forward to in reality TV because I know you have yeah. thoughts. Oh, I always have thoughts. Uh, I'm going to be really interested to see who they cast as The Bachelor on account of pretty much every man on Sophie Monk's season of The Bachelorette in 2017 was trash. I know. How terrible was the casting for that season? Oh. I don't watch the show, but I read your <laughs> recaps. And even I was just like, the quality has mm. gone down. Sophie Monk deserved better. I mean, I just gave an academic paper about fan favourites in uh, The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. And what was really interesting about Sophie Monk's season was that she was the fan favourite. And you don't normally get that. You don't have the batchy be the fan favourite. They're just kind of there for everyone else to bounce off they're like the common denominator but no the the only acceptable happy ending would have been sophie going screw all you i'm going on terrible. my own yacht <laughs> yeah exactly oh i mean so aren't they um changing the format up a bit they've got like a paradise island yes, or something that's one of the things i'm very excited about coming in february hopefully you'll let me write recaps yes of, it. of course <laughs> Is, it's the only way I could bear <laughs> to know what's going on in the show. Is Bachelor in Paradise, which is, uh, so they've done an American version of this before. Uh, I think the best description of it I've ever heard is Bachelor contestants do schoolies. <laughs> I was thinking backpackers. Uh, and, uh, I mean, in America, some of them are expected to get engaged at the end. I We don't have that same marital impulse in Australia. No, and you've written thankfully. about that, which is really interesting. Yeah, well, we've had one proposal on The Bachelor in Australia, and that was uh, Blake Garvey proposing to Sam Frost, and then he dumped her, like, immediately. <laughs> So there's, Rude. yeah, well, there's just no appetite for that kind of maritalness in uh, in Australian Bachelor, but it's a major imperative in the US Bachelor. So, for example, in the last season of The Bachelorette in the States, uh, when it came back down to the final two men, The Bachelorette Rachel ditched the guy that everyone kind of thought she was really in love with because he wouldn't propose, and so a lot of the narrative around it was that she picked a proposal over love. So it's like he was an Australian batchy contestant in an American world, yeah. even though he was from, like, Wisconsin So he's out or of context. But, yeah, so I'll be really interested to see how Bachelor in Paradise in Australia goes. Hopefully it will be less gross than the US <laughs> version. Like, the US version last year got shut down because of some... Oh, really? Some very mysterious allegations. Right. They talked about them a lot and never really said what they were. But two of the contestants got removed from the show, and it was no, and they never really explained what happened, but just made it this like big thing, the whole time. Sounds like a romance book to be written. No, uh, no, not that one. Not that one. That no, was no, a... not the people who got kicked out, but the people who stayed in. Yeah, well, one couple got engaged out of out of that. Taylor okay. and Derek, I think they're still together. But there are rumours that some American contestants will be coming on the Australian version. Which, to mix things up. To mix things up. And also coming up out of the States is Bachelor Winter Games, <laughs> which is a Winter Olympics themed. And you've written about sort of the Olympic themed yeah. uh, contest in The Bachelor as well. Yeah, which is a hot mess. But, uh, <laughs> so in The Bachelor Winter Games, each 
territory, I guess, that has the Bachelor will send a contingent and they will somehow compete, but people are also expected to fall in love. It's very Amazing. unclear how Amazing. this will work. New Zealand apparently are sending their most trash Bachelor, <laughs> Jordan, who everybody Are we hated. sending a, a candidate? We are sending people, but they haven't announced oh, okay. who it is. It's like Eurovision, mm. but American Bachelor. Well, they have to be single people, you know. If we wanted to send people that were actually going to be good at the sport, we would send someone like Sam Wood. But he is obviously married. Well, married, engaged to the winner, Snijana, of his season, and they have a baby. So probably Maybe not him. <laughs> Australia's first batchy baby. Oh, that's which so is sweet. Very sweet. They were a sweet couple. What about um, who was the golden boy of uh, Sophie Monk's? Um, oh, Apollo. Yes. They could send Apollo, but he's going on Bachelor in Paradise and I need him to fall in love with Tara, although he is already in love with James from his season. Yeah, well, I ship them. I ship them very much. <laughs> I mean, really, what I wrote about this many times in my recaps, but this obviously what needs to happen, Sophie and Tara, who was the, like, the fan favourite from Maddie J's season, are both from the Gold Coast. So is Apollo, who is a magician. Sophie and Tara need to team up and solve mysteries and Apollo can help yes. them in a Jonathan Creek style You way. have a proposal for this um, series of books, don't you? We just yep. need, I think we just need to crowdfund it yeah. and then get it done. There was also another kind of theory running through Sophie Monk's season that Apollo was a vampire. And... <laughs> I believe that was your theory. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, some... It was a good theory. Sophie herself mentioned it and I just kind of ran with it. <laughs> Who am I to steal an idea from Sophie Monk? I would, she would get full credit. But yeah, and then I noticed he wears a ring, like one of the Salvatore brothers in the Vampire Diaries. Yes, and... I saw that theory too. I was like, yes, I think she has something there. Yeah, and I mean, imagine a vampire going on The Bachelorette. Who wouldn't read that book series? Please, it would be amazing. Um, speaking of vampire romance, what is your feeling on the direction of paranormal romance? Um, I haven't actually been reading a lot in the subgenre. I think I kind of peaked. Yeah. Uh, in the sort of early J.R. Ward years <laughs> and the Nalini sort of yeah. primacy years. Yeah. And then um, I've still got my favourites, um, but I haven't kept up with the latest and greatest in the subgenre. Yeah, so I think paranormal romance in, if we're talking about kind of romance proper, is in, I don't want to say a lull, but I don't think it's one of the more popular subgenres right now. And but that's always cyclical, isn't it? Oh, that's it? always yeah. cyclical, yeah. Like, remember, like, a few years back, it was all save the contemporary and the contemporaries. Not... It's completely flooded now, yeah, I think. It's, it's fine. It's probably about to, you know, go on its downturn. So maybe paranormal will come back, which would be good for me because I write YA paranormal romance. So the YA paranormal is a bit of a different story, yeah. I think. But I think one of the things that's perhaps a little off-putting for new readers of paranormal romance is how serialised it is. So a lot of those series that started during the heyday of paranormal romance are now like 25 books yeah. long. And so committing, you know, to a 25 book long series, is, it's a, that's a big deal. Even just knowing that there are 25 to catch up on, sometimes mm. I won't even start the first book. Like I know with J.D. Robb, I think I got up to book 13. and then you made I it further like, than me. I got to four. Oh, my gosh. Actually, I don't even know if I got up to 13. But like A, you binge. Mm. So by about the fifth or sixth book, you start seeing the pattern of the way the author writes. And yeah. when you are reading the books as they're released, that's not as obvious because yeah. you've had time to sort of, forget it or whatever mm. like there's a lot of time in between 
But when you start seeing like the little author ticks and you're like, oh, yeah. they keep saying the same words or the, the same things seem to happen in the plot, yeah. I can get really annoying. And then when you know that there's like 20 plus books, you're like, you get really? fatigued. Yeah. I mean, I just heard Nalini Singh speak at GenreCon uh, in November. And she said something really interesting about the Side Changeling series, which is that she imagines that she's now in season two. And she had a clear vision for the first, I think it was like 15 or 16 books, which she now thinks of as season one. And then there's a big shift. I mean, she's obviously doing fine because she's Nalini Singh. But I wonder if there's something in there like around marketing that might attract people back to paranormal romance. Yeah, well... The- the thing I love about Nalini Singh's books is that her her side changeling series. I found the books were strong throughout. Mm. Like normally in a series, there'll be you know by the time you get to maybe the fourth or fifth yeah. sixth book, the world building overtakes the romance. Yeah, and then you're like that romance just didn't feel as fully fledged as in the beginning. But with Nalini, the romance is very strong right yeah. up until the end of the first season and yeah. I put that in sort of quote marks. Also I like that you just feel like she really respects yeah. the reader and she doesn't want to just force you to keep reading the series if you don't mm. want to, which I really appreciate. But also now I've got a whole ton of her books in my to be read list. Yeah. Just because the thought of starting a se- <laughs> another series, even though it's related to the first one, is just beyond me at the moment with my towering list of titles (laughs) to read so what are you have you been reading now what have I been reading well I want to do a project on royal romance in 2018 for obvious Harry loves Meghan reasons yes when are they getting married May the 19th May 19th so if anyone is in Melbourne where I will be living then I will be having a large party and you are invited honestly I am I've not really ever been invested in royal weddings except I just really love to watch the wedding because I want to see everybody's dresses and the whole sort of ceremony it's a wonderful spectacle but this one I'm kind of like oh they're so sweet they're they're so adorable I mean I'm technically a Republican but I'm like oh (laughs) Harry and And Meghan she's just like I've got so much joy but I have to look so dignified and I can't let it out in public I love it bless her so I've been doing kind of the research, like the ground groundwork research for uh, this project, which means I watched a whole lot of Hallmark movies <laughs> about princes. Which, by the way, there's a post on the Book Thingo podcast about some of your findings yes. on how to be a heroine yeah. in a Hallmark prince movie. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I hesitate to throw the word formula around with genre because I think it's way overused, but I think with these... Even the titles have a kind of formula to them. Like I watched A Christmas Prince, My Christmas Prince, A Prince for Christmas, A Princess for Christmas, A Crown for Christmas, <laughs> A Royal Christmas, A Royal Christmas Ball, A Royal Winter, and Once Upon a Holiday. So uh, I can't even yeah. believe you remember the titles. I remember A yeah. Christmas Prince and only because that was the first one I watched. That's like, the, I remember the rest. That's the Netflix one. Yes. But I've also been reading a lot of royal romance books. Oh, that's with... also, there's also a lot. That's contemporary romance. Yeah. What I really want to work on is I want to think about kind of how Prince characters have been inspired by William and Harry and also the role played by the press because kind of a a vein that threads through all these books post-Diana is the role played by the press and the pressures that puts on royalty and the way these books kind of unpick and unpack that fairy tale prince motif while kind of relying on it at the same time is that trope dominated by the commoner yeah. getting together with royalty very very much do you get much royalty with royalty 
I haven't found any. That's not to say there aren't any. I just haven't found them yet. <laughs> I so, find that interesting that there's no, that, well, I mean, it's aspirational, I guess. I'm sh Look, I'm sure they exist, but uh, commoner, commoner prints is the big one. I found a couple of princess commoner ones. I found one that was a kind of a later book in a series where the younger sister of a heroine who'd fallen in love with a prince ended up with the prince's bodyguard, which oh. was, that was quite a good one. I enjoyed I mean, that I one. love a bodyguard romance as well. <laughs> yeah. There was another one which I really liked. I'm trying to remember who it was by. It was called Royally Matched. I want to say it's by Emma Chase. Hang on, I can look that up. But the premise was that the prince, who was a very Prince Harry type character, to the extent where I think his name was... Henry uh, <laughs> held a reality TV show to find his oh my his princess. Obviously, it didn't work, and he ends up falling in love with someone who. But like, wouldn't the queen disown him well, the, if he did that? The, the queen had mysteriously gone away because of reasons during that one. I think she she decided he needed. Was some that more written by an American? Yeah, these yeah. are almost all coming out right. of America. These books almost exclusively. Which is another thing I want to think about. I mean, America is, just, you know, they had a whole revolution to get rid of the kind of royalty and... Well, you know, the grass is always greener. Yeah. And I mean, I suppose with Meghan now being an American, yeah, I, I think we're going to be in for an absolute slew. But interestingly, she is a woman of colour and everybody in these books is white. Apart from the forthcoming book by Alyssa Cole coming out, which... Sounds like it's just going to be excellent. Yes, Royally Matched by Emma Chase. That's what it was called. Are there any Asian royalty uh, romances? I haven't found any, but I, I started doing this research all of like two <laughs> weeks ago. And then I had one of my wisdom teeth out and I had to watch a lot of Hallmark movies and read a lot more of them. So my notes on them are pretty sketchy <laughs> i'm gonna have to read Cody a lot of these field musings <laughs> yeah fantastic thank you so much for coming on the show again my pleasure looking forward to the next book which is so my book out in 2017 was called valentine the next one i have out on january 29 2018 is called ironheart and it's the sequel to the first one so valentine was very much my complicated teenage desire book and Ironheart, while it has still a lot of that romance, is a very strong romance plot line. It's a book about rage and about teen girl rage. Oh, in love particular. it. I love it. Many, many thanks to our wonderful audio producer, Rudy Bremer. You can find the show notes for this episode, number 51, at bookthingo.com.au slash podcast. If you enjoy the show, we'd love for you to leave us a review on iTunes. This helps other listeners like you find the show. We are still getting feedback on our live reading episodes from last year, especially episode 48. Stella Torres tweeted, Dear Romance Class, I listened to Gio Gahol's reading of How to Tame Your Tikbalang on the Book Thingo podcast. I was even less prepared for that than I was on Teaser Thursday because this was me the whole time, followed by a whole bunch of surprised, shocked, blushing emojis. Thank you so much for your tweet, Stella. And we read an absolutely touching Facebook post by H. Bentham, who shared episode 27 with his followers. This episode featured an interview with Filipino authors Katrina Ramos-Atienza and Ronald Jeffrey S. Lim. H. Bentham wrote, This helped me finish my Romance Class 2017 manuscript, soon to be released in the wild. My summer field story 
and probably all stories I finished and will finish from this point onwards. It helped to be explicitly told that stories don't have to have moral lessons and that people are waiting to read the kind of stories I'm telling. Thank you for this. It's amazing to hear your reactions to the show and thank you so much for your support. In the next episode, the Book Thingo bloggers are back for a special Valentine's show featuring you, our listeners. In the meantime, please visit us at bookthingo.com.au and have a fabulous fortnight of reading. <laughs>